Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Smart, funny, and black in the crib is going down this Friday, July 31st. You know what it is. We have the Hamilton edition with Leslie Odom Jr. versus David Diggs. And this is in support of social justice nonprofit Color Up Change. 10% of the proceeds will go to their organization and the work they are doing across a number of levels of social justice and raising awareness in our community. So get your tickets today at smartfunnyandblack.com and be there in the crib for our virtual comedic black culture experience going down this Friday. Smart, funny, and black. So funky. <laughs> Small doses audience today. We we're blessed. We are. I am very honored to bring Dr. Professor <laughs> Eddie Glaude to the podcast. First of all, before you before we even start, my mother is a huge fan. Oh wow. Huge fan. Oh, like that's... because my mother watches Morning Joe. Well, she hate watches Morning Joe, but she watches Morning Joe. And <laughs> You know, you would come on there and, you know, she would, she would always be like, you know, Eddie had some things to say today, man. Eddie was talking. <laughs> Eddie had them quiet today. Eddie had them quiet. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I love to hear that. Yeah. So when I had you on Smart, Funny, and Black, she was like, ah! like. I still remember she, that, that, that sermon on ashiness. That was pretty, that had you, that got you. That got you. That one got you. Yeah. But tell Listen, your mother that I'm so appreciative. That, that makes I will smile. let her know. She is like very excited that you're on the pod. She's like, man, you're moving up. You're moving up. You're having the real intellects. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, so beautiful. Before we even get started, today's episode is Side Effects of Baldwin. And we have the author of Begin Again, uh, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Dr. Professor <laughs> Eddie Glaude. Um, those who listen to this podcast on the regular know that Baldwin is my closest thing to an idol. I don't like that word, but he's mm. my greatest influence in terms of how I carry myself through the world as a creative intellect mm. and as a black person with a platform. And I would say that I'm a marriage of Baldwin and Malcolm. Um, with the union being through humor. Uh, I like that. That is what I would say. I don't know if that's what others would say, but mm. that's what I would say about myself. But um, you know, I was I was telling I was telling Eddie off the off the mic, I mean off the show that people send me books. I don't really ever get to read the books. <laughs> okay. Y'all know I'm hella I don't like the word busy, but I'm, I'm focused. I'm doing a lot of things. And, you know, I'm also as I'm like focused on not being super focused on certain things because it drives you crazy if you're too focused on the conspiracies and the theories of all of this shit. But I uh, was so 
excited to be able to read this book. And just so we can take it up another notch, just so that you know how you're bringing me back to. Oh, look at that. A lot of underlines going on. Yeah, here. I was annotations. Just look at this. Yeah. So we're back to academia. Indeed. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm back in Professor Marable's class. Rest in the peace. Columbia days and, return. Uh, they never really leave. <laughs> My best curse outs are what I call Columbia curse outs, where I never have to devolve to curse words. I just hit you with words that you don't understand. And then the person feels like <laughs> You just insulted them with intellect, and Indeed. there you Indeed. have it. Um, so I don't want to be redundant in my questioning, but off top, for the audience that doesn't know, what made you write this book? You know, I've been walking with, with Baldwin for about 30 years, and, you know, he's informed my scholarship over the course of my career. He's been in the background. I've been having, uh, you know, he's a walking partner struggling with him, you know, this queer black man who who brings together rage and love in a way that gave me a language to deal with what's, what was going on inside of me. And, you know, in my last book, Democracy in Black, Baldwin was everywhere, but he wasn't, I didn't bring him on stage, right? So with this book, I'd said, well, let me try to walk with him because he went through a moment of profound disappointment where and despair and disillusionment where the country uh, had betrayed uh, the black freedom struggle of the mid-20th century. And he had witnessed the assassinations of, of Medgar and, and Malcolm and Martin and, and Jimmy Lee Jackson. And he saw the eyes darken of all of those young, idealistic young people from Howard and Fisk and across the country who uh, were now, um, many of whom, trying to keep, the, keep themselves together in the face of the country's turn uh, to the right. And so here we are in our own moment. Right where right. the country had had vomited up Donald Trump, and and so what I wanted to do was walk with Jimmy, um, to 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 say something specific about our own dark times, um, and figure out as he would put it through by going through the rubble and the ruin that he left, find something of use that will help us pick up the pieces, and continue to fight or push this damn boulder up the hill again. So I'm not writing about. Baldwin, I'm writing with him and trying to figure out what sorts of resources he offers me to think about our moment. Because, you know, we have to speak to this moment because Jimmy uh, is, is the wind beneath our wings, but it's us, you know, that have to speak to this time. Do you feel like, do you feel like Jimmy was regarded as that voice during his time? Because I think there's a definite difference in this current time of our awareness of our voices and what we what we are because we actually have these blueprints like James and like Stokely. And I mean, there's a myriad of individuals that we are able to look at and say like, oh, I'm the, even me saying like, oh, I fashioned myself, uh, you right. know, but they, I don't know if they necessarily were looking at themselves as the them of, as the mirror of the folks who came before them, did James? Well, Baldwin, we have to we have to acknowledge. You know, he was in in some significant way the most important writer of his period. You know, when you think about by 1963 with the publication of The Fire Next Time, he had been he was widely recognized as the most profound interpreter of race and democracy in the country. 
Um, he wasn't How, quite. Why? Well, it had it had a lot to do with the fact that you know he was sponsored by the New York intellectuals, right? He was the darling of white liberals, um, but at the same time, he was also actively involved on the ground in in the Black Civil Rights Movement, in the Black Freedom Struggle. One biographer actually said that he joined CORE and SNCC. He wasn't just raising money for them. He was a member of mm-hmm. CORE and SNCC. He thought SNCC, particularly the Student Nonviolent Coordinating yeah. Committee, was the most radical organization of this time period. Um, and so he actually, I came across uh, a transcript, Amanda, of him describing his time in Selma and confronting Jim Clark. He, he described the helmets of the various different police officers as a garden of colors, you know, bringing his artistic sensibility, the fact that he was a poet, that he was going to bear witness to what was happening in real time. And folk recognized who he was, right? And there's a sense in which, you know, between, you know, he's at the height of his fame and power in 63, by shit, by 65, um, you know, we've already, 64 is blues for Mr. Charlie, Mm-hmm. Uh, 65, we know by 65, we've already seen note, you know, this go through this call the record. You got go tell it on the mountain, notes of yeah. a native son, Giovanni's room, another country, fire next time, blues from a in corn. I mean, all of this stuff is just a kind of uh, extraordinary, amazing production uh, that spoke across different divides. So he became James Baldwin. And I want to be very clear about what that means. There was a level of celebrity that hit him. And he had to try to figure out how to continue to give voice to what he was called to do in the midst of becoming James Baldwin. I don't know anything about that. You see? (laughs) That's a doozy of a time. Yeah. You know, he said, you know, there's one moment because he writes about this in No Name in the Street, which is the first book, which I think is his most important book of social social criticism. People tend to go to Fire Next Time. Yeah. I say Fire Next Time is the prophecy. Social, no Name in the Street is the reckoning. Okay. And he's writing No Name in the Street at a moment in which his organic relationship to the people that he writes so powerfully about and for whom he loves is... There's a distance. He tells the story in the book of having to, you know, a friend, an old childhood friend who grew up in the hood, because Baldwin didn't grow up in Sugar Hill. He grew up in the hood, mm-hmm. um, calling him and said, I read that you you weren't going to wear this suit anymore. I need, I need that suit. And he's talking about the suit he bought to go to Martin King's funeral. Mm-hmm. And he goes to his friend's home, a home that he used to eat in. His mother used to love him. But the distance, because he pulls up in the limousine, he gets out. They, they started chastising, you know, Baldwin is smoking, drinking. Um, the politics of, of his friend who has, who's chosen a life, he works at a post office. Everything is, you know, about a middle-class existence. And Baldwin is trying to navigate the distance between him and his close partner from childhood. Um, and that becomes a kind of metaphor for the distance that fame has put in between him and the people for whom and to whom, right, he's dedicated, you know? That's, I mean, I've I've experienced that, like, in my own way. And it's fascinating because you're, because that distance is upheld by the people in certain ways, too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, like my therapist literally said to me, like, you keep thinking you're still in the peanut gallery and the peanut gallery doesn't want you there. Um, and I'm, I'm curious in your, in your understanding of, of him reaching the point of I'm James Baldwin, how did he reconcile that chasm? I don't think he did. He understood it. Mm. That the, that the folks would not know who know him. But yet he still had to bear witness. Yeah. You know, I mean, Michael Thelwell said there's James Baldwin, then there's James Baldwin, and then we have to deal with James Baldwin. Right? That before you can even get to the man. And so he's constantly finding and searching, looking for places so that he can find some quiet, so that he can think and do get his work done. Uh, because the fame, he couldn't really get his work done here in the States at a certain period because everybody's pulling on him. And and so he's constantly retreating, finding places. This is why St. Paul de Vance is such an extraordinary space for him. This is the welcome table, right? It gets him out of the muck, mm-hmm. right? So that he can really think and 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 hone his craft as a writer, even though he's bearing witness. So I don't he, I think he came to recognize that the relationship he once had as a young man um, to the community that he loved so much to the language that danced in his head, to the music that made him who he is, um, that it was always already now, you know, mediated by the fact that he was James Baldwin. And he could not leave that behind. In fact, he had to understand how to leverage it for the good. Right. You see? How to leverage it for the good. Now that you have this space, because we've been, we've been busting our behinds to do what we do now to get where we are now, um, you know, languishing in, in the shadows, you know, honing the craft in the cut, you know, mm-hmm. pining for this moment now that we have it and it's all on us, now what you gonna do, right? And so the question at that point is not to revel in the fact that you're here, but how to leverage your influence in order to, in order to generate good. Understanding that every now and then you're gonna have to pull out mm-hmm. And every now and then you're going to have to realize that loving the people doesn't necessarily require that they love you. Mm. You're preaching today. <laughs> it's Monday. I got a passage for you, too, because I've been watching you. You know, every now and then I'll pop up in your Instagram live yep. things. So I found a passage in the book because I've been thinking about you over the course of what you've been describing, that you know, the journey uh, that you've been experiencing as of late, um, because Baldwin in this period of his life is dealing with trauma, is dealing with wound, is dealing with pain Mm. and trying to pick up the pieces, right? Because I, you know, most people don't know in 1955, he tried to commit suicide. After Dr. King's murder in 68, 1969, relationship fell apart. He tried to commit suicide. He had to pick up the pieces. Um, and, and, And No Name in the Street is so powerful as a, as a piece of nonfiction because the book at the level of form, Amanda, is trauma, is wound, how it's organized. Right. Right. So we got a lot to, I mean, I don't know how much time well, we have. We got we, a lot I of mean, time. <laughs> we should be talking offline anyway. You know, like it, it really, you know, I was watching I'm Not Your Negro recently. Yeah. And you just, this internet makes you think that you're more connected um, but oftentimes it's, it's somehow made us more insular, uh, mm-hmm. because it's become this like weird space where you can be completely like focused on what you're putting out while not having to care about, uh, 
what anyone else is putting out or, or not even really like actually connecting in conversation. And so, um, I was watching, I'm not your Negro and just, you know, hearing him speak about his relationship with Lorraine's hand with Lorraine Hansberry and, and making, you know, making the, the, uh, the trek to go see Malcolm, to go see Malcolm speak and, and basically just making it his business to have these connections with his peers of this time. And I mean, I, I had like that epiphany of like, you know, I know what my peers are doing. And, you know, if we see each other, we high and buy, we may like something or not, but it was like, no, you have to make an art and effort to have that on the ground connectivity with your, with your peers particularly in this era. Uh, because without it, you're really just, I, I feel like without it, I'm just, we're all like in our own little inner, like our capsules and we're, we're, dichotomizing the, our power. We're basically like, uh, we're splitting the prism, you know, yeah, like, yeah. and, and that, that, that diminishes its actual effectiveness. But when you talk about like the escape and the, not, not necessarily the escape, but like a retreat, can you speak to James and, and his relationship with France and yeah, this is, you know, why, how that existed for him? So it's 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 a relationship that evolves over time, right? There's a chapter in the book that I that's entitled Elsewhere. And I remember it's the last chapter I wrote in the book. And it was so difficult to write Amanda for this reason because initially I wanted to go to Istanbul. I wanted to retrace his steps. Because after King, you know, he had been going to Istanbul for about 10 years. He finished another country in Istanbul. He finished No Name in the Street in Istanbul. I mean, I can just he a lot of his major work, the last sentences were, were written in this place that stands on the edge of the East and the West. Um, and uh, what was fascinating about it is that my editor was like, okay, you can't go to Istanbul now because of Erdogan and all this crazy stuff. And, you're, and I had never been out of the country as a critic of Trump. You don't know what will happen, especially going to a place like, like Erdogan's Turkey. And um, uh, so he was like, well, why don't you go interview activists? And I was like, we always asking for, we always asking activists for advice. Why don't we give them some? Why don't we offer them something? And so part of what el the Elsewhere chapter is, is not about exile, but it's about how we have to find a place to replenish. Mm -hmm. A space in which we can laugh full belly laughs. A place where we can be, where we can be rageful. There's this extraordinary short film uh, written by Sadat Pakay entitled From Another Place. And it's Baldwin in Istanbul. Um, and he's, I can never forget this. He's in Taksim Square, sitting on a balcony, looking out. And they're filming, the, and it's a short film. And, and you know, there's glimmers. And, and Baldwin turns around and he looks at the camera, Amanda, and he has this deep furrow of, his brow, furrow of his brow, like he's puzzled. And then suddenly something happens and his face spreads into this extraordinary joy. Yeah, you got it? And something about the relationship in that space gave him, right, the room to deal with his pieces, to find an elsewhere, which means acquiring the requisite distance from the powers that be so that you can say something about it, mm -hmm. acquiring the distance so that you can deal with what's happening on the inside. Baldwin knew he had to go to France. In 1948, he said, either I, I got to leave this place or I'm going to get killed or I'm going to kill somebody. Because on, on Route 1, right here in New Jersey, a waitress refused to serve him and he flung a glass at her head. 
and then had to run for his life. The rage that he saw in his stepfather was now in him, and he knew it was going to eat him alive. And so he had to get the stories in his head on the page. But America required, he had to deal with these daily cuts, this not just microaggressions, right, but the reality of having to deal with this place got in the way of him trying to create himself as a writer. Man only has a high school education, you know? So he basically spins the globe and ends up in Paris. That's what he tells you. But we know why he's in Paris, because Richard Wright is there, right? We know why he's there, because there's a community of folk there. And then he gets there, and he does something remarkable. He wills himself into becoming the man that would be James Baldwin. Um, barely had any money to feed himself. You know, tells the story of, 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 of him and his friends stealing blankets out of a hotel room and then the police showing up and locking them up and, and, he, and he's crying, screaming out loud. Jimmy was prone to the dramatic, screaming out loud because he's in, in prison. You know, but the idea was France gave him the requisite distance so that he could say something substantive about this place. You know, it's funny, I I speak about, like, I went to Belize in March, mm-hmm. and it was the first place I've been that felt peaceful. Um, like, I tr- I've traveled, but it was the first place I've ever been that felt, like, clear-headed peaceful. Even with those big-ass iguanas? Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love the giant iguanas. I literally, like, there's monkeys. Like, I saw a tarantula. <laughs> like, there's snakes and lizards. Like, I mean, and you know, I'm from Grenada. Yeah. And But when I go to Grenada, it's a different, Grenada's a groundedness, but it's not necessarily a peace in the same way. Um, because Grenada, I have all these connections and histories and pasts and presents and futures and all these things there. So, and now I'm known in Grenada. So I don't have the freedom of anonymity there. Whereas like, don't nobody know me in Belize? I'm on a bicycle. They like move, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, in Grenada, they like move too. But they're like, move Amanda, you know, which is different. Um, right. And so I was telling a friend of mine who, you know, works in the activist space and he's a poet and, you know, he, he fancies himself a I mean, he is a revolutionary, but he was like, you can't leave. You can't leave while all of this is here because um, then, you know, you're running, but it's still going to be the same everywhere else. And I just was like, I don't agree. You got to leave to, to, to even, if you have the privilege, if you have the, the fortuitousness to be able to leave, you get distance, and with that distance, you get clarity. I mean, it's just the basics of walking, of, of looking at a big picture, you know? And so even hearing you speak about Baldwin feeling that same way does bring to me a certain level of peace and reassurance that I'm not crazy um, because I don't feel like it's escape. Right, and you don't necessarily have to leave the country in order to find your elsewhere. No. Part of what we're talking about is you got to find a community of love, people that will, that will tell you the truth about yourself, uh, that will give you the space uh, to be who you are in the moment that you are in, right? Whose expectations of you aren't overburdened by the reality of your of your 
of your position, mm -hmm. of your calling, but who love you to the marrow of the bone, right? And see, the marrow isn't the bone. That's inside the bone. Um, and so what does it mean to be in a space that, that, that allows you to laugh those full belly laughs? Because you can't, you know, that's not going to happen anywhere. The place that's going to allow you to rage, right? When you just want to cuss everybody mm -hmm. out or choke some people to death because the world has, 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 it has, has revealed itself in all of its ugliness that the rage is uncontainable, right? The people who will allow you to cook, to listen to your music, to dance, mm -hmm. to do all the things. So those communities, we call them communities of love, and we have to expand them, right? Because one of the things that, right, you know, I always say this about the book. I'll, I barely survived writing it. Why do you say that? Because I thought I was going to write with Jimmy, with Jimmy, about Trumpism. And, but Jimmy is an exacting companion. Mm. So... He's, he has he believes in this in the Socratic dictum that the unexamined life isn't worth living. Okay, now say that for those who don't speak Cornell. <laughs> Socrates, the the ancient uh, Greek philosopher, has a has a phrase called the unexamined life is not worth living. By the way, right now our our resident philosopher Brendan is over there off camera, <laughs> like yes, 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 yes. Go <laughs> so. But he translates it in this way. Before it's it's almost like a the precondition for me to say anything about the world is that I had to deal with my own mess, because Baldwin is making the claim that the messiness of the world is actually a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. Yes, and so there's always this parallel in his work where he's going to deal with the autobiographical, but the point is not to stay there. It's to use it as the point oh, to get to, to get something broader. So here I am wanting to write about Trump and I'm busy, busy dealing with the fact that I'm a vulnerable little boy. Still grappling Ooh, with daddy, still grappling with daddy issues. The brothers. Right. The brothers. Right. How old are you, Eddie? I'm 51. So I'm what sitting here. What was that like? Oh, it was it was crazy because I'm looking every time I sat down to write Amanda, I look up and there was Jameson. There was Irish whiskey right within reach. Right? Baldwin forced me to confront the scaffolding of my own lives. That set that put everything, that set in place everything. But then there was this moment, right? Because I was about to, I don't know how I survived. And then there was this moment. I saw this, I'm getting all excited. I'm jumping Good. up and down in my seat. There's this moment where he's having this, uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the conversation between him and Nikki Giovanni. Of course. And there's this moment, and, and, and Nikki has, you know, she'll say anything. And Baldwin yes. is being generous in this moment. She's really young. He's James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. He's giving her this space. And then Baldwin, she says, you know, you go out and you lie to these white folks. And da -da -da -da. she me. says, lie to me. Lie to me. And I was like, damn. Damn. And what she was what she was revealing in that moment is that what it means to care for others, what it means to live outside of being so, you know, focused on your own mess sometimes requires for the love of people. Restraint. Exactly. That you can't reveal everything. Correct. So that helped me get through it. But I knew when I started working on the book that he was going to take me to places that I wasn't expecting to go. What built the scaffolding of your lies? 
So in previous interviews, and I've been having this conversation with my dad, my dad is this, I, I look just like him, mm. spitting image. And um, he could scare me by just looking at me. He Because of because you knew what he was capable of? Yeah, never had any physical violence and any wasn't physically he just abused. Had a menace that you could trust. It, it was emotionally uh, fraught. I started writing my first book when I was 10 on a powder blue typewriter. And I still remember this the, the first line. There's a difference between physical abuse and psychological abuse. Okay. So. Right? So my dad could just look at me and I would shut it. My big brother, he would say, stop looking at him. We want you to cry. He wants, because then he's going to focus on you. Stop looking at him. Right? And so at the heart of all of this is that at a very young age, my dad deposited in my gut fear. As a mechanism. And what I've been doing all of my life is trying to prove that I'm not afraid. To yourself? To myself, to the world. You know, I was at Morehouse. I don't didn't have a high school degree. We're having a student protest. I'm about to walk on stage in front of all of the freshmen on, on Prince uh, Morehouse's campus, about to announce the, re- you know, we want the resignation of da-da-da-da-da. And as I'm getting ready to step up the steps, I'm like, I don't have a high school degree. If these people kick me out, what am I going to do? And I remember in that moment, I just said, fuck it, I'll just join the Air Force and walked up the steps. Right? But those are moments where I've had in my, you know, these these choices. Do I want to cultivate the habits of cowardliness or the habits of courage? And at the root of it is what my daddy put right in here. And so I'm working on a book about Baldwin, trying to find my own voice, because I'm writing about this guy whose language is so amazing that it can go imperial. It can occupy my pen. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do I keep my voice in the midst of walking with this guy? Well, it required that I had to deal with me and my mess to free me up so that I could say what I saw. So I could say it with power and vigor and and, and insight. So I had to deal with the mess that's in me. And what resulted was Jameson. Right. I was drinking myself into a stupor. But why in the dealing, what what was it about the dealing that sent you there? Was it just the facing of it? The first phase of just acknowledgement that sent you to the, that sent you to the drink? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I felt more comfortable, uh, freer, you know, I'm not saying I was an alcoholic, but you know, I was, I was when, you know, it's like people with cigarettes and, and when they smoke, they got to have it in their hand, you know, that when they, when they're writing, they got to have the cigarette in their hand or something. Cause it, it becomes yeah. a crutch that allows them to construct, yeah, allows them to construct a sentence because it's it's part of the uh, the performance of a certain kind of writer. So um, I was, and I write about this in the introduction, you know, it just came out of nowhere. I was like, you know, I knew why I didn't want to write about Jimmy in graduate school. I knew what he was going to force me to encounter. Um, so since graduate school, you knew. Yeah. But you were like, nah. <laughs> And it took, what, 30 years? He's been, I've been working with him for 30 years. But, you know, there's a line I came across. I came across these transcripts uh, from his first uh, biographer, Fern Margie Ekman. That's another story. I have. This is an amazing story, actually. Um, 
you know, she's close to 100 years old and, and, and a friend of mine, Imani Perry, was like, I was like, I need to find... Master black spurt, Imani Perry. <laughs> you know, but I had, I, I was talking to her. I said, I, this biography is crazy. It, can all, it has all of these uh, quotations. I need to get a hold of these interviews. And she's like, well, why don't you call? I said, no, Ekman has to be dead. Those, those, those archives have to be somewhere else. And suddenly I get into my email, these phone numbers, you know, because she, she didn't found the phone number. So I dialed the first number and lo and behold, it's Fern Margie Ekman. She's living in the same apartment she's been living in for about 50 years. Her niece is about to move her out into a, 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 into a nursing home. She says, come. So I came to visit. She said, unfortunately, all the tapes were lost, but I have transcripts of the tapes. And I'm thinking it's going to be like 10 pages. It's like 150 pages of transcripts. So I'm like, damn. So I start reading it. And there's this, this moment where Baldwin says, you know, and this, this is a long-winded way to get to this point. He says, when you're afraid, you walk toward the trouble. Yeah. You, you walk, go deeper into the crevasse. You walk toward the trouble. So he's talking about he was afraid to go south, so he went. You know, so as I'm reading all of this and I'm trying to put it all together, I just went there. You know, now what my was dad, different about now that made you feel ready to go there? Um, you know, I got a great relationship with my dad now. Um, but is that man. relationship based on ever facing? Yeah, it is. Oh, that's good. So it's like it's like Jim, it's like Jimmy's own relationship to his father. So when you his stepfather, you only called him his father. But when you read the early Baldwin, his judgment of his stepfather is harsh. He sees him as complicit in his own victimization. He, yeah. he conceded to what the world said about him. But by the time you read the later Baldwin, his judgment of his father is much more generous. He understands his father as a victim in so many ways. And so part of what I have now, you know, my father and I tell each other, we love each other all the time. Two uh, this, black American men. Yeah, this man who wouldn't even... Who told me? Who told me he doesn't remember being hugged by his mother? I say that because I don't know if you saw the film Uncorked. No. So Uncorked is a film by our showrunner from Insecure, Prentice Penny, mm-hmm. and uh, just came out on Netflix in March. And it's a great. Sorry, my cat is protesting. Uh, but it <laughs> disagrees. A, it's a great film that, on its surface, about is about a brother who wants to be a sommelier, but at its core, is about. A, a son and a father and the ways in which black love is expressed between this son and this father that feels so strained to anyone who's you're just like just say i love you damn but it's like <laughs> no like that's just not yeah the way that this messaging gets across like we're not going to use language in that way we use action in this way and we you know we express in this way and it feels so arduous but when I was talking to um to Prentice he was like yeah but that's this is brothers like and and fathers because fathers are bringing their pain into a space where they want to love you, but they don't have the tools or the language. So it's just, and so I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, where you 
had that mindset of like, oh, you're, my father is a victim, so I'm not taking it personal anymore. You know, in some ways, it goes back to uh, one of the insights that I found in the rubble of Baldwin's work. You know, you have to work hard to protect his soul, you know? Um, hatred mm -hmm. is corrosive. Uh, it, it, it gets into the soul. So, you know, um, mm. I had to understand him better so that I could make a reasoned judgment about him. And I remember going home at my mother's behest and I just sat down at the table because I, you know, I know I, I know why I left home to go to college early. I ran away from home. I just didn't go to the streets. I just ran to college. Okay. Um, I was 16. And um, and I remember when I went home and and he so, what? Go ahead. Yes. wait because you just said that real loose like that's <laughs> a casual option for folks like you know, I just instead of running to the block you know what I'm saying I, I ran to the to the library and that's not a casual option for folks so can we just take a quick a quick <laughs> dovetail to how the fuck that was an option for you. Well, you know, at Morehouse, Morehouse has they, what they call the early admit program. And it, it was devised or developed during the World War, uh, World War II, because most of men were gone, going off, had gone off to fight. And so this is the same program that Martin Luther King went uh, and Maynard okay. Jackson went through. So I remember I was at a I was at summer program. My sister went to Spelman. She was, you know, and came home and told me I was too white. It was hilarious and said I needed to go to <laughs> I needed to go to Morehouse. So I lied and said I wanted to be a doctor and went to the summer science program, fell in love with the place, walked into the dean of admissions office, Dean Sterling Hudson, and said, I want to convince you to not let me go home. And I walked out with a scholarship and I went to a phone booth back in the day, called my mother and said, I'm not coming home. Where was home? Moss Point, Mississippi. Country Sit. boy country boy to the core. And what did your mother say? To hell, you're not coming home. What you talking? And so I had to come up. My dad said, I know why you're leaving. Don't ever ask, don't ever think you're not going to want something from me. Because he had, it had, he left to join the, the Navy for the same reason. And lo and behold, I got up at Morehouse and, and wild, started wilding out, lost my scholarship my sophomore year. He took a mortgage, second mortgage on the house without even blinking called Black Love. It's the same mm -hmm. man who would deliver mail in, in Mississippi heat to sweat, would literally sweat out his belts, fix the same lunch every day, a bologna sandwich with mustard and mayonnaise every day, right? But could look at me and I would just simply shudder because I knew what he was capable of. Um, but I remember that conversation uh, when my mother told me to come home and, and she he just started cleaning stuff off, off the table that wasn't there. You know how old folks start. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Tidying. Yeah. And just start telling me his story. Because, you know, we grew up on the coast of Mississippi. Um, most of my family on his side are, are light-skinned with green eyes and straight hair. And he's my color. Mm. Um, and so the colorism he grew up yeah. with and all those things. And so he began to give me an account. Things didn't. 
immediately work themselves out, but that was the foundation. Now he calls me to tell me what to tell what to say on the news. When well, they ask you this up. question, when they ask you this question, you say this in response. So now he's telling me what to say on the news all the time. It's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. This is a fascinating conversation for me for obvious reasons, but also just in the concept of hearing you talk about how like your father's opening up to you allowed you to open up. Mm-hmm. James, you know, opening up in text also allowed you to open up, allowed him to open up. Um, and for what it's worth, and this is what your book is about, allows so many of us to open up, right? And yeah. and it becomes it, it it really when you talk about how you know, he realizes and he speaks to the fact that at the end of the day, what's going on out here is a result of what's going on in here. I have, I guess in recent memory, just just come to in a very tangible way, understand that like, when we talk about overcoming and black folks overcoming and so much of it ends up being a conversation about oppression on the outside and racism and all of those things are real and discrimination is real and the prison industrial complex, all of these things are actual factors, but I don't expect anything from white folks. I don't expect them to be better than what they are because this is what they've been. However, it is to me like the healing of our actual traumas that are our biggest weapon against anything that they throw at us because I mean, that is what, that's the biggest weapon they threw at us is creating these traumas that we continue to, to manifest. And I feel like so much of the actual brainwashing that has hurt us the most is our relationship to our feelings and that we've been weaponized to not trust them. And it has closed our brothers off from themselves, which thus closed them off from us as sisters, which has closed us off as a community from, you know, connecting. I just had a whole situation this morning with somebody that I love and, I, you know, that I consider to be a mentee, but she just, do, 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 do. all the walls have gone up and I don't have the key to that. And I have to let her find, you know, the key to unlock it from the inside out. And it's like, how do you... How do you get that to folks? I mean, I'm curious about what it was in your dad's mind that in that moment was like, let me, you know, let me just open the door ajar because that's, I just feel like we're protecting so much of us and real and under, and then having to realize that the protecting is actually what is preventing. You know, when you think about it though, Amanda, let's think about this over the court. I mean, so generational evil, generational trauma, however we want to describe it. I, I write about this for a moment in the book where I talk about, you know, the enslaved. There's nothing about the condition of being in slavery that would lead you to believe that your life is going to be otherwise. Correct. So how does how do you hold on? What 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 how do you not resign yourself to your fate? And so there are these fleeting moments, even in the midst of the cruelty and barbarity. So You see the glimmer of love in someone's eyes right in front of you. This person loves me, even though they can be snatched away from me. Or you hear the innocence of your child's laughter, even though they are not yours. And so these moments of eruption of love in the midst of the cruelty become the cornerstone 
for a different way of being in the world. They don't, they don't resolve the trauma, the wounds, the pain, um, but they become the cornerstone, so much so that when you actually get free, you walk to find them. One of the first things you do, one of the first things they do to show you that slavery was not complete in its domination is that all these folk just simply started walking, trying to find family members. Have you seen such and such? Do you know such and such? I haven't seen her for 40 years. I haven't seen my child. Right. So those those fleeting moments. So even in the midst of my dad's own pain, this man grew up with me. Had four children before he was 20, by the time he was 21. So he grew up with us. They grew up with us. And so that love um, becomes the, 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 the will within the will, as Baldwin would say. That becomes the basis for the breakthrough, you see. Um, but, you know, I'm always, I, I'll say this, and, and I didn't know we were going to th- go here on your podcast. But I'll say this, you know, there's a form of Japanese pottery called, called katsugi. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Well, you throw it. No, you break it's, it. No, it's, it's broken. The, the pot, the the pottery, the pottery is broken. But then you fill the cracks with gold. Yes, yes. And what's so beautiful about it is that the crack pottery is actually more valuable than the initial. Because you can see the fissures. The, so the we goal are always, is not to make it look like it wasn't broken. The goal. See, the, the, that's. Go on. That's go it. on. So the, you would guess the object. <laughs> the objective is not to be whole. The objective is to find beauty in one's brokenness. So I can't be put back together. I know that. I know my wounds. I know what they do. But what does it mean to find beauty in this broken self? To not seek wholeness. Because even when you put gold in the crack, it's still cracked. So, so, So part of what we have to do Right. And this is what Jimmy said to those high said to those students in, in, in Howard in 1963, mm-hmm. after they chopped it up and they went and got some bootleg liquor, got him some some Johnny Walker black, and they, they chopped it up until the sun came up at Howard. And, Stokely. and he's and Stokely was there, Cortland Cox was there, Michael Thelwell was there, I think Muriel, Muriel Tillingas was there. All these folk who had put their lives on the line in the bowels of the South, trying to replenish. And he says, Promise your elder brother that you will not believe what this world says about you. And if you promise me that, I promise you I'll never betray you. And he never did. What is the lie? You talk about the lie in the book, and um, I talk about Mm. it a lot. You know, I got to tell you, reading reading this book has just been simultaneously assuring, reassuring, but also deeply concerning because Mm. you know you talk about James's tools being from his America to help us with our America but it really feels so similar I mean I say that as I you know sit in a in a piece of privilege that I made for myself but at the end of that 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 I probably wouldn't have had the asset the access to do during that time but I just, how do you feel? So can you just, for, for our listeners, speak to sure. the lie that, that James speaks about, um, you know, that he was speaking to those students about, and how you feel that lie has, you know, metastasized, how it has shifted, has it, how it has retreated, you know, whatever you feel it, is, it has changed to today. 
So, you know, in, in terms of what you just said, I think what we need to say is that the through line of American history is what I call the value gap. Okay. And that through line is the belief that white people matter more than others. So that that belief evidences itself in our dispositions, our habits, our practices, in our social arrangements, in our political and economic arrangements. So it can the belief that white people matter more than others looks a certain way in the conditions of slavery. It looks yes. another way in the conditions of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. It looks another way under the conditions of a black president. It looks another way with uh, with Donald Trump, right? So, but the through line is that in this country, white people are valued more than others. And to the extent to which that's true, it is on the basis of that that advantage and disadvantage are distributed across across populations, right? right? The lie is what we tell ourselves to obscure that fact, right? It's the architecture, right? We're the shining city on the hill. We're the example of democracy achieved, da-da-da. James Baldwin wrote this in 1964 called The White Problem. He wrote this in 1964, and it's called, he says this, he says, the people who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, Mm -hmm. and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. Mm-hmm. For if he wasn't, then no crime had been committed. That lie is the basis of our present trouble, he writes. You see? And so, so that, that, that lie about our capacities, that lie about our capabilities and our passions, that lie about black folk, then becomes the basis of a certain self-imagining. The lie about the, that we tell about what we've done in the world, as if we haven't done anything in Haiti or Cuba or right. Puerto Rico or across or the globe. Exactly. The lie that we've told ourselves to protect ourselves from the reality that we reveal who we are. So Baldwin says, you can't do this to people and then claim innocence. The innocence is the crime, right? The willful, the willful ignorance is the crime. So we keep telling ourselves lies, right? And so here we are in, the, in 2020, in the 21st century, and we still hear lies. Not just coming out of the Oval Office, but even as we try to correct the lie of the lost cause, which is behind Confederate statues and the like, people are still asserting the belief that this country is a white nation in the vein of old Europe. That's the lie. That's the lie. Designed to protect the illusion. Right? Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. What is different about this time in particular, though? Um, Like, I know I always say, I feel like the internet is probably like the biggest difference to me just in terms of tools for advancement tools for engagement empowerment etc and i don't know how much of that is simply just from my own personal like usage of it in that way um but what would you say as we look at our new as we look at the america that we are in um actually better yet what do you think baldwin would say is different about our America than his. Well, you know, I I never try to 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 imagine his words. I just simply go to them. Fair enough. You know, um, and I think, you know, he his his ongoing insistence that we confront honestly 
who we are and what we've done in order to release us into a, into a different way of being in the world. Um, and the question he would ask is that, if, are we telling the truth? And the answer is obviously, uh, some of us are trying, but most of us are, are wallowing in the illusion of safety and comfort. Um, it seems to me that, you know, there. Baldwin, Baldwin's despair is different qualitatively than ours because he never had Barack Obama. Hmm. You see? He never had, you know, he lived through the 1960s. He prophesied it. Yeah, you know, so... so He said Barack, he said we was going to have a Barack. And he knew exactly what that would mean, right? Because, you know, we don't want to read the evidence of things not seen. But if we read that book, then we have a... a a biting critique of black elites in this current moment because he was trying to figure out how did all these black babies get murdered in Atlanta with all these black people in power. Um, um, so, so I think, you know, what's different about the moment of the demographic shifts, what's different about the moment is that uh, generations, whether they're millennials or Gen Zers, they, they know that this place is broken. Right. Um, and and we, the means by which they give voice to that knowledge um, like you said, the internet and whatever, uh, their skill set is radically different. But you know what's interesting, though, even though they know that it's broken, there's no guarantee that they're going to bank to a more progressive vision or a more authoritarian vision. I keep telling people, Dylan Roof was not a baby boomer. The Boogaloo Boys are not baby boomers. Richard Spencer is not a baby boomer. So just because you're young, there's no guarantee that you're going to end up Right with the progressive vision of moral, a racially just vision of the country, you can go the fascist route, the authoritarian route. We're seeing that across the globe, right? So where we are is that you know it's what Robert Johnson, the old blues man, would say: we're at a crossroads. The country faces a moral reckoning, and there's no guarantee where we're going to end up. The only thing I know is what Toni Morrison said in her Nobel lecture, and that is that it's in our hands. You know, it's, it depends on what we do. And when you say we, who are you speaking about? I'm talking about those of us who are committed to a more just world. So Baldwin makes this wonderful distinction between white people and those people who happen to be white. I love that distinction. Baldwin said that? Oh, yeah, he does it. He makes it in The Evidence of Things Not Seen. You know I say that in my special. I literally (laughs) have a whole... I never knew he said that. Oh, yeah, he makes that distinction. I literally... Have a like that <laughs> I'm I I thought you were joking. Like no, I literally that... have a whole section of my special about there's people who are white and people who happen to be white. And I explained the difference between those who th- you see, no ideas original. It all and I, I call I call people who happen to be white, I call them Hannah's. And so like I have like white women who will be like, I'm a Hannah. And I'm like, the first part of saying the first part of being a Hannah is not announcing the shit. Okay, just <laughs> <laughs> live in the space. Yeah. Elaborate, please. So, so, you know, there, there's this moment where for me, you know, he makes this distinction because he happens to love people who happen to be white, love a lot of people who happen to be white. Yes. And these are these folk who deconstruct the idea of whiteness on a yes. regular basis. Yes. They understand that racism comes to them as naturally as language. Oh my God, this is my exact special. Go on. <laughs> So if you read, for example, uh, Wendell Berry's The Hidden Wound, this Kentucky-bred white boy, right? There's a passage. Ooh, I could pull it. I see it right there. There's a passage. Uh, um, 
um, pull it, pull in, it, pull in the text. Let's see if I can find. No, I'm too. I got. I'm, I'm tethered. <laughs> I'm tethered. tethered. <laughs> you can take but, the headphones out. They're, they're, okay, let me find it. Okay, hold. On. Yeah. My God, I'm bugging, bugging. I told you I can find it. People don't understand. Like when you have a bookcase, you know where your books are. I know exactly where all my books are. Well, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. When I moved here, <laughs> when I moved here and I was packing, my someone was like, "Why are you bringing all them books?" I'm like, "The fact that you're asking me that concerns me about the continuance of our friendship since I leave this space." <laughs> yeah, anybody asks me that, they they are automatically not in in my in my uh, uh, sphere of moral concern. Um, but but there's this wonderful passage in the Hidden Wound where. Um, I'm trying to find it, where he, he writes uh, that he's dealing with the fact that he is racist, okay. right? That his language, that racism comes to him as natural, as language, and that he has to work hard every single day to rid himself of it, right? And not to congratulate himself, because this is an ongoing, ongoing practice, right? And so there's those folks who happen to be white. And then there are folks who are invested in the value gap. They're invested in the idea that white people matter more than others. They're invested in the idea that yeah, advantage and disadvantage, exactly, those are white people. And so I happen to love a lot of people who happen to be white and then they're white people. So we're not talking about white people and, you know, so when I say white people, it's a technical, for, it's a technical yes. formulation. Um, <laughs> I need the Jameson. Like, <laughs> I never, no one in, I mean, my special came out yeah, January of last year. Mm. Nobody has ever brought this to my attention. Yeah. Of course, the great Dr. <laughs> Professor would come here and expose the truth to us, which is what the whole book is about, just like you did on MSNBC, when you're like, y'all could sit up here and talk about Trump, but you're acting like he just poof. Popped up out of nowhere. Yeah. He was created. He was manifested. This was a platform. He could only survive if the if the environment had created a sustenance for him. I mean, a sustained space for him to survive in. Yeah. 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 You know? Um, let me, I found the Wendell Berry passage. You know I, I'm, I'm obsessive, so I had to find it for you. I was allowing said, the space for you to do this because you're, you're speaking to you're, an obsessive individual. Because you're brilliant. So listen, he says, I'm trying to establish the outlines of an understanding of myself in regard to what was fated to be the continuing crisis in my life, the crisis of racial awareness, the sense of being doomed by my history to be, if not always a racist, then a man always limited by the inheritance of racism, condemned to be always conscious of the necessity not to be a racist, to be always dealing deliberately with the reflexes of racism that are embedded in my mind as deeply, at least, as the language I speak. It's a Kentucky bred white boy. I'm assuming he says in the book, but what was the impetus that brought him to this revelatory moment of like, oh shit. Wow. And then saying, I don't want to be that. 
right? Because I've dated brothers who have an oh shit moment and are like, you know what, actually, man, I'm gonna still keep on being a trash nigga. But you keep on, <laughs> you 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 keep on keeping on. But sister. I think it's in relationship with others. It's in relationship with others. You know, it's like it's like it's like when somebody was asking me the question about these white folks running around in dark face, uh, you know, you know, in it, you know, putting yeah. you know the pain on their faces. I said it's clear to me they don't have any black people in their lives that they love. There. And they were like, well, what do you mean? I said, because if they had somebody black in their life that they loved, they would know that that was harmful. So if you have these relationships, these deep relationships that afford you a broader sense of who you are and who you aspire to be, it's going to throw you back on yourself if those relationships are genuine. It's like I tell people like... My friends who happen to be white are of that distinction for a number of reasons, but it's it's clear it's most clearly shown in the fact that I can talk about white shit and they are not offended because they know it's not inherently them. They know that it's a it, it's more so like, oh well now I got more work to do, you know, but they don't take it as them because they know that their relationship to that is by an oppressive means, not by their own personal gain that they are assigning to it. I I guess, you know, to, to wrap up. Sure. I, um, cause I'll talk to you for five hours. You know this. So, uh, I love this. When you were writing this book, Over the course of this interview, we've talked about how inadvertently or advertently it was partially you were writing it for you. Yeah. We talk about white people. We talk about people who happen to be white. We talk about black folks. Uh, We did not discuss coons. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Though there is a whole sector of space that has to be addressed to that at some point. Yeah. because I, I, I've, I've just recently had, like, Isaiah Washington, the actor, like, he contacted me and was like, you know, you have no place to call anyone a coon. Uh, you're divisive. You're being racist against your own people. I'm like, you, you're, you're, first of all, you're just unintellectual. So, like, that whole string of thoughts is rooted in bullshit that, that, that I don't even really feel like is worthy of a Columbia curse out. I should just give you a base ass curse out, which is shut the fuck up. Mm. But it's really just your own pain that you're projecting. And there's a, there's an, there's an empathy in me that wants to speak to that and, and work through that. But there's also, to be honest, Eddie, there's a, there is still a hatred in me of just like you fucking up our shit. And I, (laughs) Don't appreciate it. And I need you to check yourself. And I don't know where that bridge is for me. And I think, you know, when I look at Baldwin, he, he does, I don't know. I haven't necessarily done enough reading to know if he's spoken about that amongst us, but he, he talks about that bridge amongst white people and just kind of like this love that he still has for like their, their capability perhaps of getting to the other side, like this, like uh, the the passage you just spoke to, but when you were writing the book, like who else was this book written for? Because I know when people ask me, like, can you give me a reading list? I'm like, I don't have the time. I'm on my trampoline. (laughs) 
you know, I, I, it was written, to be honest with you, it was written for those young people who risked everything in Black Lives Matter. You know, for Ferguson. I, I mean, it broke my heart to see so many of, you know, so many of them who are dead now. Yes. And, and, it, and by conspiracy. Exactly. And it, and it broke my heart that they risked everything and the country elected Donald Trump. Right. And I was trying to but figure out. But did the out, country elect Donald Trump? Well, he's the president. Fair. You know, and the thing is, that's, you know, we can say that the majority of us voted for Hillary Clinton and da, 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 da. I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I still get trouble. Get, 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 Who'd get you in trouble. I didn't vote for anybody at the presidential election, uh, presidential level. I voted down ballot because I was in the state of New Jersey. I can I argue this in democracy and black. Look at your face. You, you look at you. You don't know what I'm about to say. <laughs> but look at your face. But we're running out of time. I'm <laughs> like, well, I, I was gonna ask, would you do the same this time? No, no, no. I understand. You know, it's like <laughs> wait, I no, no. Let me tell no. you something I love about black men, particularly black intellectual men. <laughs> Y'all. True, like brother, brothers never lose the nah, nah, nah. <laughs> like I just got closer to you just now. Nah, nah, yeah. nah, nah. That wasn't absolutely not Amanda. You know, actually, uh, in this new revelatory space that I've in, that I'm inhabiting, my man said nah, nah, nah. Chill, yeah, chill, so chill. you know, there's this moment. You know, I, I I said this in the book. I do a mea culpa in the book, and you know, I said I, you know, I said this on national television that I overestimated white folks. Didn't we all? And and I said, um, you know, Baldwin in 1979, when when Reagan was running against Carter, and Jimmy Carter had betrayed had betrayed black people, you know, in some ways he was the first neoliberal president. Even though we celebrate him for, you know, have homes and habitat, that, yeah, yeah, right. But you know, he his his policies of austerity devastated black communities, particularly in the urban centers, and you know, so he really lost in '79 because black voter turnout was low. Um, and Baldwin was like, yo, you know, sometimes, you know, we fought for the vote. We fought to vote and didn't realize we had nobody to vote for. And then he said, sometimes, you know, most of the time, black people vote in order to buy themselves some time. Right? Because Ronald Reagan for black people in 1979 was as bad as George Wallace. Easy. Easy, easy peasy, right? Just as bad. So, so I should have, as a lifelong reader of Baldwin, I should have known that in 2016. But I thought there's no way these people are gonna gonna elect that man. So now we got a chance to really break the hole of the of the Clinton, you know, machine on the Democratic Party. For eight years, we couldn't really talk about race because we're protecting the flank of Barack Obama and all the hell we've been catching. We need to get race on the, you know, and it needs to be more than just simply hot sauce in a purse. We need to get an agenda, right? So I'm thinking we got to press and push because we got an opportunity because there's no way they're going to elect that fool. And then boom. And now look at the suffering. So, you know, I should have known better. You know, someone I say told that me the, the other book. day. Someone was telling me the other day that they feel like even if we don't, even if Biden does end up being the next president, that it will still be bad for Black people. Not necessarily because of Biden, but more so because of the vitriol from the individuals oh. who still want this person to win because they represent a reclaiming of the white supremacy of this nation. 
Oh, buckle up. No matter what, what happens in November, buckle up. We're not going to, for the first time in the history of the nation, we have to worry about the transition, the peaceful transition of power if he loses. And people are talking about him not viewing the election as legitimate. We need to think about the 40% of the country who will, view, who will not view it as legitimate. So there's that. Then you need to buckle up as well, because what we have to do is understand that the country is at a, is at a crossroads, as we said earlier. And every time a new America is about to be born, and we're the midwives, the white supremacy is the umbilical cord wrapped around the baby's neck. And we allow white supremacy to choke the life out of it. So what whether whether if if Biden is if Biden wins, our work is still in front of us. We got so much to do. You know, so much to do. Cause, you know, it's like King in, in at the end of the Selma March in Montgomery. He's like, people are clamoring for us to go back to normal. Let me tell you what was normal. And then he starts listing all of the violence and the death. You want me to tell you what was normal before Donald Trump? You want me to list what was happening to black and brown folk before Donald Trump? You want us to talk about the wealth inequality, the people who are dying because they didn't have health care, the folk who are dying because they didn't, they were, they were, they were drowning in poverty. You want me to talk about what was happening before Donald Trump? That was broken. So it's not about a return to normalcy. It's not a return to the illusion of safety. We have to choose to be otherwise. We have to be, you know, this is why the book is entitled Begin Again. Baldwin says, he says this, man. He says, in just above my head, he says, when, when the dream was shattered, and I'm paraphrasing, when the dream was shattered and some of us lost our minds, we went, we went to jail. Uh, some of us were murdered. Right. And then, he's, you know, basically we had to figure out what was going to happen in the aftermath of all of that. Then he says, responsibility is not lost. Responsibility is abdicated. And if one refuses abdication, then one begins again. Right. Um, and here we are. We ha- it is our responsibility to give birth to this new America. And, and the question is whether or not we will step up or whether or not we will abdicate. Hence the Jameson. (laughs) I'm hoping the Jameson has dissolved. I hope that's not a hot toddy. For the record, I I I attempted to start a weed habit. Um, (laughs) I came back to LA from quarantine fully committed, like. You know what? I'm about to get me a weed habit. Like I, you know, I, I feel like I need to to just bring that peace into my space. And my person who would be the uh, oh, this is the enabler, uh, the supporter, the uh, who I would be patronizing, uh, literally said to me, "No." Yeah, some people don't need to be smoking weed. And I said, "Why?" And I was like, "You think it's gonna play with my head?" And he was like. I think you got a lot you need to remember. Wow. Wow. And I was like. See, that's love there. That's that's love. <laughs> I got to call him. He was like, I think you got a lot you need to remember. And that, that shit really does make you forget. And he was like, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I love smoking. But he was like, I know that I'm smoking to forget a lot of shit. Wow. 
And he was like, you can't forget. You got to remember. And I was like, God damn it. You, you see how angels come in ordinary time? Listen, I will always tell you, like, I have had angels. When I found out that the brothers in my high school had a uh, a salon of sorts to decide that I was not to be touched, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, we was like, nah, she, she, she ain't. She ain't she ain't on the list. I'm like, what? Why? Because I was flat chested. <laughs> and they were like, nah, because you just you you just That's wasn't funny. that wasn't That's... for you. And we just decided like it ain't gonna be us. And wow. I'm like, I mean, thankful, but I just had no when I found out, and I speak about this often, that my first grade teacher and, and my second grade teacher that they had had a powwow where they decided like we need to protect her. I didn't know that. You know, but they two black women at a school in L.A. had decided, like, she tested for gifted in kindergarten. She's going to be a target. So we need to watch. But I think, you know, Baldwin is an angel for me. Mm-hmm. Baldwin is an angel for me. I mean, there's been many times on this journey as and you know this as an intellect in a world of ignorance. It is very lonely mm-hmm. and it can feel alien. It just can feel like I'm breathing air with way more effort than I should. Um, Mm. And Mm. I like that. Is that a pen? Did you just get a pen? You gonna write that down? (laughs) Yeah, I like like that. Put the glasses on. Um, But he, in his writing, oftentimes serves as as a breathing device of sorts, as a way of allowing, allowing my thoughts to be a filter in a way that I can manage better. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's like a, um, it's an above, it's, <laughs> it's an above, above water scuba, you know? And I mean that in the most literal sense, because for someone who lives in my mind as I do, like it ends up being the way that I function. You know, the way that I think is the way that I function. For some folks, that's just not their their thoughts are separate from how, you know, how they're moving. They're not really yeah. considering. I mean, even my mom will say a lot of times, like, oh, I'm just talking. I'm like, I don't have that freedom. I never feel like I'm just talking. Mm-hmm. It always feels like every word is going to be measured, if not by others, by myself. So, <laughs> you know, you have to manage that. And Baldwin and and learning always continuing to learn more about how he has managed that has been a a practicum of sorts for me in this process as yeah. I continue to as I see myself as someone who does need to continue his work, you know, and he was an individual, but you know, he splinters off into others and, you know, the mastery of what you continue to do as a writer, as a professor, as a as a brother, as a father, as a thinker, et cetera, you know, we we thank you and appreciate you. Because yeah. you are you a know, part of that breathing device for me as well. You know, people are asking me over and over again as I do these interviews, and I, you know, they, well, who is the modern day Baldwin? Who is this? You know, they're asking me that question, and I keep saying to folks, um, I reject the ground of that question. Yeah. I, you know, we don't need another Baldwin. We don't need another King. We don't need another Ella Baker. I need an Amanda Seals. I need an Imani Perry. I need a Jasmine Ward. I need. Sarah Broom, I need a Kiesi Lehman. You know, we need uh, to understand that this moment is unique only insofar as we are present in it. 
And it is our presence in this moment, our voice in this moment, that that will offer a vision uh, for uh, the next phase of the struggle. Our voices are informed by the giants that yes. made us possible. But you know, you don't, you know, it's like, you know, it's like listening to early Coltrane or early Miles. You can hear them imitating. Mm-hmm. But suddenly you hear something different that's uniquely them. So as you as you said earlier, you know, it's not about us living in our individual silos and in our in our particular spheres. We have to understand that the work that you're doing in your domain is linked to the work that I'm doing in my domain, which I just had a conversation with Don Cheadle, which was beautiful, you know. And I was like, yo, man, you know how many times I've been, I just loved the way in which you you portrayed Mouse in Devil in a Blue Dress. <laughs> yes. That was just so beautiful. Yes. You know, but but to but to connect our work in this freedom struggle, in in this in this effort, ongoing effort to build a more just world, to understand that you're not alone in this space. Um, even if we're not talking, you know there are others like-minded yep. who have the same courage, who have a similar heart, uh, same commitments. And we out here fighting lions with a switch. But we winning, though. The Last Dose I want to thank you, Dr. Professor... Eddie Glaude for joining us. Begin Again is available in stores now. You are a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, of course, yeah, Avi. Yeah. Um, and um, one thing I will say that I appreciate about this book is that it is a robust read, but it is not a dense read. Thank you. That's high. That's a high compliment. Yeah. It's, you know, like you, you, you don't feel like you got to walk it off. You know, like in the, you know, like sometimes you read shit and you're just heavy. It's like, damn, like this. <sighs> and, and, and also, you know, and, and it feels sometimes like you're like, I can't, like I know, like when you read Souls of Black Folk the first time, you're like, I'm not really sh- sh- sure what I'm, I know I need to, but is this, it's like when you read Song of Solomon the first time, you're like, okay, I went to school. I read books. Yeah. yeah. Like Farrah Griffin was my professor. Yeah. Yeah. Why? You know? And so sometimes that can feel um, like you can't really get the the meat of the text. And in this, in this, in the time we're in now, it's like, I don't even have time to do all of that. Like I need to be able to like extract and get it like off top, but it doesn't feel surface. And that's what I think is so beautiful about it. And I thank think it's you. just built into the way you write and Baldwin and y'all's union. So thank you for giving us this piece of work. Go out and get thank it, y'all. Uh, well, no, don't go. If you go out, wear a mask. Um, but acquire it through means that puts money in Dr. Professor Eddie Glaude's Because <laughs> we must support true artistry. So I thank you so much for your time and for your work and for your service. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. Appreciate you. Scarpins Avenue, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.